Chapter One of the Diamond Cross Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. The Diamond Cross Mystery by Chester K. Steele. Chapter One: The Ticking Watch. There was only one sound which broke the intense stillness of the jewelry shop on that fateful April morning. That sound was the ticking of the watch in the hand of the dead woman. Outside the rain was falling, not a heavy downpour which splashed cheerfully on umbrellas and formed swollen streams in the gutters whence they rushed toward the sewer basins, carrying with them an accumulation of sticks, leaves, and dirt. Not a windy, gusty rain that made a man glad to get indoors near a genial fire with his pipe and a book. It was a drizzle, a steady, persistent drizzle which a half-hearted wind blew this way and that, as though neither element cared much for the task in hand, that of thoroughly soaking the particular part of the universe in the neighbourhood of Colchester and taking its own time in which to do it. Early in the unequal contest the sun had given up its effort to pierce through the leaden clouds, and had taken its beams to other places, to busy cities, to smiling country villages and farms. Above, around, below, on all sides, soaking through and through, drizzling it, soaking it, sprinkling it, half-hiding it in fog and mist, the rain enveloped Colchester, a sodden, damp garment. Early paperboys slunk along the slippery streets, trying to protect their limp wares from becoming mere blotters. The gongs of the few trolley cars that were sent out to take the early toilers to their tasks rang as though covered with a blanket of fog. The thud of the feet of the milkman's horses was muffled, and the rattle of bottles seemed to come from afar off as though over some misty lake. James Darcy, shivering as he arose, silently protesting from his warm bed, pulled on his garments, audibly grumbling, the grumble becoming a voice protest as he shuffled in his slippers along the corridor above the jewellery shop and went down the private stairs into the main sales-room. The electric light in front of the massive safe seemed to leer at him with a bleared eye like that of a toper who, having spent the night in confival company, found himself, most unaccountably, on his own doorstep in the grey dawn. Raining, murmured James Darcy as he reached over to switch on the light above the little table where he set precious stones into gold and platinum of rare and beautiful designs. Raining and cold. I wish the steam was on. The fog from outside seemed to have penetrated into the jewellery shop. It swirled about the gleaming showcases, reflected from the cut glass, danced away from the silver cups, broke into points of light from the times of forks, became broad splotches on the blades of knives, and perchance made its way through the cracks into the safe, where it bathed the diamonds, the rubies, the sapphires, the aquamarines, the pearls, the jades, and the bloodstones in a white mist. The bloodstones! Strange that James Darcy should have thought of them as he looked at the rain outside, heard its drip, drip, drip on the windows, and saw the fog and swirls and mist inside, and without the store. Strange, and first as he gazed at the prostrate body, the horrid red blotch like a gay ribbon in the white hair, he thought the small insistent sound which seemed to fill the room was the beating of her heart. Then, as he listened, his ears attuned with fear, he knew it was the ticking of the watch in the hand of the dead woman. James Darcy rubbed his eyes as though to clear them from the fog. He rubbed them again. He pressed his hands before his face as if cobwebs had drifted there. He touched his ears, which seemed not the part of himself. 
tick-tick, tick-tick, tick-tick. The sound seemed to grow louder. It was not her heart. Hello, come here, somebody, Amelia, what's the matter? Sally, Sally Page, wake up. Hello, somebody, she's dead, killed, there's been a murder, I must get the police. James Darcy started to cross the room to reach and fling open the front door leading to the street that he might call the alarm to others than the deaf cook who had not yet come downstairs. Mrs. Darcy's maid had gone away the previous evening and was not expected in until noon. It was too early for any of the jewellery clerks to report, yet Darcy felt he must have someone with him. To cross the store to reach the door meant stepping over the body, the grotesquely twisted body with the white upturned face and the little spot of red near where the silver comb had fallen from the silvered hair. And so Darcy changed his mind. He ran to the side door, fumbled with the lock, flung back the portal, and then rushed out in the rain and drizzle, the fog streaming after him as he parted the mist like long white streamers of ribbon such as they suspended at the door for the very young or the aged. Hello! Hello! shouted Darcy into the silent rain and mist of the early morning street, now deserted save for himself. The glistening asphalt, the gleaming trolley rails, the dark and damp building seemed to echo back his words. Hello! Hello! Police! voiced James Darcy. There's been a murder! A murder! echoed the mist. There was silence after this, and Darcy looked up and down the street. Not a person, not a vehicle, was in sight. No one looked from the stores or houses on either side or across from the jewellery shop. Then a rattling milk wagon swung round the corner. It was followed by another. Hello, hello, there, you, called Darcy hoarsely. What's the matter? asked the first man as he swung down from his vehicle with a wire carrier filled with bottles in his hand. Somebody's been hurt, killed, a relative of mine. I want to tell the police. It's in that jewellery store and he pointed back toward it, for he had run down the street a little way. "'Oh, I see. Darcy's. She's killed, you say?' "'I'm afraid so. Accident? I don't know. Looks to me more like murder.' The milkman whistled, set his collection of bottles back in his wagon, and hurried with Darcy toward the store. The other man, bringing his rattling vehicle to a stop, followed. "'Where is she?' whispered Casey, as soon as he reached the side of his business rival, Tremlane. "'On the floor, right in the middle, between the showcases,' answered Darcy, and he, too, whispered. It seemed the right thing to do. "'There, see her?' He pointed a trembling finger. "'Lord, her head's smashed!' exclaimed Casey. "'Look at the blood!' "'I—I I don't want to look at it,' murmured Darcy faintly. "'Hark!' cautioned Tremlane. "'What's that noise?' They all listened. They all heard it. It's a watch ticking, answered Darcy. First I thought it was her heart beating. It sounded so. But it's only a watch. Maybe so, assented Casey. We'd better make sure before we telephone for the police. She may only have fallen and cut her head. You, you go and see, suggested Tremlane. I, I don't like to go near her. I never could bear the sight of dead folks not even my own father. You look. Casey hesitated a moment, and then stepped closer to the body. He leaned over it and put the backs of his hard fingers on the white, wrinkled, and shrunken cheeks. They were cold and wax-like to his touch. She's dead, he whispered softly. Better get the police right away. 
"'Murdered?' asked Tremlaine, who had remained beside Darcy, near the showcase where the silver gleamed. "'I don't know. Her head's cut bad, though there's not so much blood as I thought at first. We mustn't touch the body. That's the law. Got to leave it until the coroner sees it. Where's the telephone?' "'Right back here,' answered Darcy eagerly. "'Police headquarters number is—' "'I know it,' interrupted Casey. "'I had to call him up once when I had a horse stole. I'll get him. "'What's that watch ticking?' he asked, pausing. "'Oh, it's in her hand!' And the other two looked and saw, clasped close in the palm of the woman lying huddled on the floor, a watch of uncommon design. It was ticking loudly. "'What makes it sound so plain?' asked Tremlane. "'Cause it's so quiet in here,' answered Casey. "'It'll be noisy enough later on, though. But it's so quiet. That's what makes the ticking of the watch sound so plain.' "'It is quiet,' observed Trent Lane. "'But in a jewellery store there's always a lot of clocks making noise, and say!' he suddenly cried. "'There's not a clock in this place ticking. Notice that. Not a clock ticking. They've all stopped.' "'You're right,' exclaimed Casey. "'The watch is the only thing going in the whole place.' The milkman looked quickly at Darcy. "'Yes, the clocks have all stopped,' he said, wetting his lips with his tongue. "'I didn't notice it before, though—' I did hear the watch in her hand ticking. I thought it was her heart beating. I guess I said that before. I don't know what I am saying. This has upset me frightfully. I should think it would, agreed Casey. Funny thing about the clocks all stopping, though. Suppose they all ran down at once. They couldn't, Darcy answered. I wound the regulator only yesterday. And he pointed to the tall timepiece in the show window, the solemn ticking clock by which many passer-by set their watches. The other clocks. And they've all stopped at different times, added Tremlane. That's funny, too. If anything could be funny in that place of death, this fact might be. And it was a fact. Of the many clocks in the store, not one was ticking, and all pointed to different hours. The big regulator indicated 10.22. A chronometer in a showcase was five hours and some minutes ahead of that. The clock over Darcy's work table noted the hour of 7.56. Some cheaper clocks, alarms among them on the shelves, which were usually going, showed various hours. They had all stopped. Only the watch in the dead woman's hand was ticking, and that showed approximately the right time, a little after six o'clock. "'Well, we've got to get the police,' said Casey. "'Then I've got to travel on. Customers waiting for me.' "'You—you won't leave me here alone, will you?' asked Darcy. "'Isn't there anyone else in the house?' asked Tremlane, for the living rooms were above the jewellery store, a substantial brownstone building of the style of three decades ago. Only Sally pays the cook. She is deaf and she'll be more of a nuisance than a help. Mrs. Darcy's maid won't be in until noon. I don't want to be left. Oh, you won't be alone long, observed Casey. The police will be here as soon as we send them word. And here's a crowd outside already. There was one made up of men and boys, with here and there a factory girl on her way to work. They had seen the two milk-wagons in front of the jewellery store, the store which, though most of the more valuable pieces were in the safe, still showed in the gleaming windows much that caught eye of the passer-by. Someone sensed the unusual. Someone stopped. Then another. Someone had caught sight on peering into the store of the prostrate figure with that blotch of red in her white hair. The crowd, increasing each minute, pressed against the still-locked front doors. Those in the van flattened their noses against the glass in grotesque fashion. "'Hurry and get the police,' begged Darcy. 
Casey was about to telephone when Tremlaine, who had gone out into the alley from the door, hurried back to report. "'Here comes a cop now. Saw the crowd, I guess. We can just tell him what we saw. Casey, and then slide along. I'm late as it is.' "'So am I.' The policeman, his heavy-soled shoes creaking importantly, came along the street, hurrying not in the least. He knew whatever it was would keep for him. "'What's the row?' demanded Patrolman Mulligan. "'Looks like the old lady was murdered,' Casey answered. "'I was just going to telephone to headquarters.' He told briefly what he knew, which was corroborated by Tremlane. Then the two left to cover their routes after giving their addresses to the policeman. The crowd grew larger. From outside it looked like a convention of umbrellas. The rain still drizzled and turned to steam and mist as it warmed on the many bodies in the throng. A mist that mingled with that of the rain itself. In spite of the storm the crowd grew and remained. Those who might be late at bench, lathe or loom, and heeded the passing of time. It was not every day they could be so close to a murder. The crowd filled the entire space in front of the jewellery store. The bolder spirits rattled the knob of the locked portals and tapped on the glass that was now misty and grimy from hands and noses pressed against it. The crowd began to surge into the alley, whence a side door gave entrance into Mrs. Darcy's place. Some even ventured to press into the store itself, the store where the silent figure lay huddled between the showcases. "'Now then, slide out of here. Take a walk,' advised Mulligan as he shoved out some of the men and boys who had entered. "'Get out. You can read all about it in the papers. The reporters will be here soon enough,' he added with a wink at Darcy. "'I'll lock the door and keep the crowd out. The sleuths can knock when they get here. Where's your phone? I'll have to report to the station.' Darcy pointed to the telephone, and the policeman, showing no more than a passing interest in the body, at which he glanced casually as he passed, called up his precinct and reported, being told to remain on guard until relieved. "'How did it happen?' he asked as he came back from the instrument and leaned against a showcase containing much glittering silver. "'Who did it? When? How?' "'I haven't the least idea.' replied Darcy, turning away so as not to see the faces now pressed against both the front and side doors, each being locked from the inside. I found her, just as she is now, and called in the milkman, who happened to be passing. I had come down to the store early to do a little repair job, and the first thing I saw was her. What time did it happen? I don't even know that. All the clocks have stopped. I don't usually wind the watches that are left for repair unless I'm regulating them, and I haven't any like that now. The only thing going is that one watch. What one watch? I do hear something ticking. And the policeman looked at Darcy. What watch? The one in her hand. Oh, I see. Huh. Well, we'll leave that for the country physician. He'll be here pretty soon, I guess. They'll notify him from the precinct. Now, how about last night? Was there any row, any noise? Did you hear anything? I didn't hear anything. Much. There's always a lot of noises around here until after midnight. Theatres and moving picture places let out about eleven-thirty. I woke once in the night, but I guess that doesn't matter. Anybody else in the house besides you? And the policeman yawned, for he had gone out on a dog-watch and looked into the wet, shiny, drizzle-swept street. Only Sally Page, the cook. I'll call her. There's Mrs. Darth's maid, Jane Metson. But she went away yesterday afternoon, and won't be back until about noon. 
It's past time Sally was down to get breakfast. I'll call her. Darcy made a move as though to go to the rear of the store, when the side door gave entrance to the stairs leading to the rooms above. I'll go with you, said Mulligan, and he shoved himself to an erect posture by forcing his elbows against the showcase, on which he had been leaning in a manner to give himself as much rest as possible without sitting down. It was a way he had acquired from long patrolling of city streets. You, you'll go with me, faltered Darcy. Yes, to call the cook. She won't run away, and he nodded toward the dead woman. Oh, there was a world of meaning in Darcy's interjection. You mean that I, I don't mean nothing, broke in Mulligan. I leave that to the gumshoe men. Come on, if you want to call what's her name. It took some little time by calling and pounding outside her door to arouse deaf Sally Page, and longer to make her understand that she was wanted. Then, just as Darcy had expected, she began to cry and moan when she heard her mistress was dead and refused to come from her room. She had served the owner of the jewellery store for more than a score of years. Hark! exclaimed Mulligan as he and Darcy came downstairs after having roused Sally Page. What's that? Someone is knocking remarked his companion. Maybe it's the men from headquarters. It was Carol and Thong who always teamed it when there was a case of sufficient importance as this seemed to be. They were insistently knocking on the side door, having forced their way through the crowd that was still there larger than ever, maintaining positions in spite of the dripping, driving, drizzling rain. Killed, eh? murmured Carol as he bent over the body. Gone? asked Thong, who was making a quick visual inventory of the interior of the place. No, doesn't seem so. Looks more like her head's been busted in. Hit with something. Doc Warren can tend to that end of it. Now let's get down to business. Who found her this way? I did, answered Darcy. And who were you? Her second cousin. Her name was Mrs. Amelia Darcy, and her husband and my father were her first cousins. I have worked for her about seven years, ever since just after her husband died. She continued his business. It's one of the oldest in the city, and— Yes, I know all about that. Robbery here once before your time. We got back some of the stuff for the old lady. She treated us pretty decent, too. When did you find her like this? About half an hour ago. I got up a little before six o'clock to do some repair work on a man's watch. He wanted to get the early train out of town. I see— "'And you found the old lady like this?' asked Carol. "'Just like this, yes. Then I called in the milkman.' "'I saw them,' interrupted Mulligan. "'I know them. They're all right, so I let them go. "'We can get them after they finish their routes.' "'Um,' assented Thong. "'Anything gone from the store?' he asked Darcy. "'I haven't looked. Better take a look around. It's probably a robbery. "'You know the stock, don't you?' "'As well as she did herself.' I've been doing the buying lately. Well, have a look. Who's that at the door? He asked sharply, for a knock as of authority sounded, different from the aimless and impatient kickings and tappings of the wet throng outside. It's daily from the Times, reported Mulligan, peering out. Is all right? Shall I let him in? Oh, yes, I guess so, assented Carol, with a glance at Thong, who confirmed by a nod of his head what his partner said. He'll give us what's right. Let him in. The reporter entered, nodded to the detectives, gave a sharp glance at the body, a longer one at Darcy, poked Mulligan in the ribs, 
lighted a cigarette, which he let hang from one lip, where it gyrated in eccentric circles, as he mumbled, "'What's the dope?' "'Don't know yet,' answered Carol. "'The old lady's dead, murders, it looks like, and—' "'What's that?' interrupted Thong. "'What's that ticking sound?' "'It's the watch in her hand,' replied Darcy, and his voice was a hoarse whisper. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ashley Jane